Amen. Thank you, Melissa. As the choir and the band come down, we'll get our Bibles out and open up to the book of Nehemiah. We are closing in on the end of this book, this wonderful study, Nehemiah chapter 9. This morning is where we'll begin, page 558 on the, in the Pew Bible that's in front of you, or you can open your Bible to the book of Psalms in the middle and just back up a few books and you'll find Nehemiah there. If you get to Ezra, turn around, come back one, and there's Nehemiah. The amazing Old Testament uh, chronicle of God rebuilding a people and using an ordinary man by the name of Nehemiah. And so this uh, study, which I've called Sea of Faces, as God, uh, it, so relate, it so relates to our heart as we see uh, the God of the universe just pluck this ordinary person out of a sea of faces and use him to do extraordinary things as he is rebuilding a people. Now this morning, uh, before I pray and we begin, I, I want to set a, um, just a, a, a place in your heart to help us this morning because what we need to do is grasp something that is going to be very uh, elusive to some of you today and so I believe that God wants to restructure the way that you see him uh, maybe give you a fresh glimpse in order for that to happen I want to try to leverage everything I can for the spirit of God to open our eyes to that so let's begin with this I want you to imagine that you are an angel now, I realize for some of you that's going to be a little more difficult. But I want you to imagine that you're an angel, and God calls you into His office one day, and so you know, oh boy, here we go. You go into God's office, and He dispatches you to earth. He says, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to earth, and I need you to, here's the person that I want you to uh, watch over and take care of and steer in the right direction. And this person is a farmer. And God explains to you everything about the person and how God created them and knit them together in their mother's womb and made them to be a farmer. And that's what he designed and created them to do. And, and so you are in charge of helping this person and guiding this person to become the farmer that God created them to be. And so you're excited. You finally got your, uh, your, your big wings, and so you're ready to go. And so you go to heaven I mean, you come down to earth and you start watching over this person. Now, as you're watching over this person, let's just call him Bob for the sake of the illustration. As you are working with Bob, what you find is that Bob is not what you originally thought you would encounter. Bob, uh, you know, is a farmer and lives on a farm and uh, seems to want a farm, but is not very successful in farming. And what you find is that what Bob does is Bob ignores the principles of nature and just tries to farm in his own way. So in other words, what Bob does is Bob uh, gets very discouraged and defeated because his farming's not working out very well, which then frustrates and discourages you because Bob just goes out, for example, at the wrong time of year and just throws seeds around, doesn't uh, pay attention to the weather patterns, doesn't you know, harvest in the spring, doesn't plant at the right times, doesn't do, just does whatever seems to seem feel right to him. And when you try to deal with Bob, Bob is forever frustrated 
with himself. He's frustrated with the fact that he's not a, a very good farmer and that farming's not working out the way that he uh, intended for it to work out. And what makes you crazy is that Bob is frustrated with the weather. He's frustrated with the fact that the weather won't seem to cooperate with the way in which he wants to do things. And so you are trying to get Bob to see that it's not the weather that needs to change. That every successful farmer understands the principle that nature is what nature is. And in order to be successful in farming, you have to farm according to the laws and principles that are in place in nature. They're unyielding. They are immovable. They are what they are. And so... You continue to work with Bob. Bob continues to get frustrated. In fact, Bob gets so uh, flustered because his farming is so uh, unproductive that he stops acting like a farmer. He doesn't even tell people he's a farmer because he's kind of embarrassed at the fact that he's a farmer because he doesn't really do very well at farming. And so Bob decides he's going to be a blacksmith. And so he trades in his overalls for coveralls, and he starts working as a blacksmith. And the whole time, you're thinking, Bob, you're not a blacksmith, you're a farmer. But Bob doesn't really want to hear that because farming's not working out. And since Bob won't do the farming the way he's supposed to do the farming, I mean, and so you can see the frustration that you're in. And around and around this goes. And so you then have to figure out, well, what are you going to do to get Bob back on the farm and then to get Bob back farming the way he's supposed to farm so that you can succeed at the mission to which God's called you? I mean, what are you going to do? What's your plan? So what I would do is I would just uh, continue to work with Bob. I would uh, try to prepare Bob. I would know in advance that uh, he's never going to be good at blacksmithing because that's not what God called him to do. That uh, the only way he's going to find peace and joy and fulfillment is if he comes back to the farm. And so therein is this quandary that you find yourself in as an agent of God trying to work with a human vessel. Now, let's pray. Father, we thank you today that, Lord, you have something to say to us. And, Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. I thank you for the potential that there is today for our hearts to be transformed. And by the renewing of our mind, that through your word, God, you may uh, show us what is your good and acceptable and perfect will. And so, Father, thank you in advance for what can happen now, Lord. We pray that you will come, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, that we might, uh, that you'll peel the scales away, Lord, and help us to see clearly that which you want us to see today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's make sure if you're new with us or you haven't been walking with us through this study, let me just briefly get you caught up to what's going on. Nehemiah is a slave in a kingdom of Persia. He is a, a Hebrew, one of the people of God. They've been overrun first by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and now they're being ruled by the Persians because of their unfaithfulness. God warned them over and over and over and over. He told them that if they didn't, uh, began to obey him and do the right thing, that he was going to send uh, a nation to overthrow them like a lion, which is exactly what he did. Uh, the 
the prophet Jeremiah prophesied, begged, pleaded. So Babylon comes and overthrows uh, the people of God, crushes Jerusalem, destroys the temple and the wall. And God had prophesied that they would be in captivity for 70 years. At the completion of 70 years, uh, God then allowed uh, the Persians to overthrow the Babylonians. And the first delegation, Zerubbabel, was sent back to start rebuilding the temple. Uh, he then rebuilt the temple about 50 years after that or so. Uh, Ezra the scribe is sent back and then just shortly thereafter uh, Nehemiah comes back to help rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. All Nehemiah knows is that it's God's uh, plan for his people to be together, to have a place to worship him. And so he doesn't know anything about construction. He doesn't have any resources. He has no, I mean, anyone who he went to and said, I'm going to go rebuild the walls around Jerusalem would have told him he's absolutely crazy. But he had a burden, and God opened the doors for him to do just such a thing, and the walls were completed in 52 days. And what we've learned is that this whole book is not about rebuilding walls, but about rebuilding people. And so as soon as the walls are rebuilt, what then ensues is exactly what God had set the stage for in the process of all the construction and so on and so forth. Uh, Ezra the scribe and some of the priests find a copy of the law which had all been gone and burned up since it had been overthrown and they begin to read it. And as they read it, the people of God stand for hours and hours. They lay on their face, they weep, they wail, they mourn. This is all new to them. Much of it is just a reminder. They're beginning to see now what uh, the, the greatness of God and how everything that God had warned them had come to pass and the way in which he said that it would. And so they begin to respond. And so what you see is really a, a little picture of uh, revival coming to God's people. And you might think to yourself, well, well, why bother investing so much time in studying this Old Testament story? I mean, you know, uh, a lot of people... Uh, struggle with the Old Testament and they think that it's, uh, it's not applicable, it doesn't relate, it's uh, somehow less prominent or important than the New Testament, which is insane and ridiculous. It's all the Word of God and it's all uh, for us. But just so that you understand why we're doing what we're doing, Paul explains this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he's talking about their need to understand the Old Testament and what happened he says, now all these things have happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And what Paul is telling us is that these Old Testament uh, stories are for examples for us to learn by, to be encouraged and instructed through so that we can understand what God is doing and what is his nature and character and purposes for mankind. And so that's exactly why we need to understand what is going on in the book of Nehemiah. Well, this sort of revival goes on for about 24 days. And so when we get to chapter 9, we're in the 24th day of this revival. Uh, in verse 3, the Bible says that they were still. They stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord and their, uh, their God for a fourth of the day or for three hours. And then for another fourth of the day, they began confessing and worshiping the Lord their God. And really, when we say, well, you know, if, if this were to, say, happen here, I think the way that a lot of us would characterize that is we would say, uh, oh, well... 
revival has broken out at Michael Memorial. And we wouldn't necessarily be incorrect in that. The problem is, is that most of us have absolutely no idea what revival is. What is revival? What does that mean? What is the, you know, and, and not what does it mean to us, but what does that mean? What is God doing when we say revival? It's God is reviving the relationship that he has with his people. That's what revival is. Revival, it always comes through the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit guiding the people of God back to relationship with Him. That is revival. Uh, Revival is not spiritual awakening. Those are two different things. When the lost are spiritually awakened, that is a byproduct of revival amongst God's people. God doesn't awaken the hearts and minds of those that are away from Him He does that through reviving the relationship he has with the people of God. And God has always been about that relationship. That's his whole purpose. So, for example, in the beginning, in Exodus 19, verse 4, the Bible talks about, well, what is all of this about? And the Lord says, well, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Not brought you out of captivity, not brought you to something else, not brought, but brought you to me, brought you to relationship. So you see, the first thing is God wants you to see that this whole, the whole redemptive purpose of God in Scripture is God bringing people back to relationship with Him. And then... Uh, the two verses later in Exodus 19.6, the Bible says, And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's going to revive this relationship. And when that's revived, what he's going to do is he's going to give you a new identity. This is our identity. So we have a relationship and then we have an identity. And that's exactly what we see happening every time God begins to work amongst his people. Revival is what God does in His people. I cannot stress that enough. You know, it's out of the revival of God's people that the lost world sees. So when we we pray, God, will you save the lost? Will you save the lost? Well, I mean, that's not a bad prayer to pray. You just need to understand God's mechanism for doing that is through the saved. That's how He works. And so when the relationship, where you see a group of people where people are getting saved, where the Spirit of God is working, that means that there's a revival of the relationship between God and those people. Because that's where He sends those whom He is calling unto Himself. Well, maybe you're not sure about that. Well, in John chapter 9, Jesus said about Himself that while He's here that he is the light of the world. But then what did he say when he was talking about when he's not here? In Matthew chapter 5, he says, You and me, we are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, once Jesus departed, he then gave us his spirit that we might be his witnesses. This is his plan, that he would revive our relationship, and through that, the lost world would be one to himself. Okay? So it comes relationship, identity, all these things begin to happen according to the way God has laid out His economy. 
So if a nation spirals downward, if a nation is becoming darker and darker and darker, what is the problem in that nation? The problem in that nation is not darkness. The problem in that nation is a lack of light. It's a light problem, not a darkness problem. Darkness only does one thing, and it always does the same thing. It's light that overcomes darkness. And so where there's darkness, what is needed is light. It's the people of God need to be revived to the relationship of God, and then you'll see light begin to pierce through the darkness. Now, don't forget about the farmer. Don't forget about your job. All that's hanging over everything I'm saying. All right, chapter 9, verse 28 is where we left off. So we, we go through the first 28 verses. It's this cycle of confession about, God, you did all these great things, and then we did terrible things. God, you did all these great things, and we responded by doing terrible things. And back and forth and back and forth it goes. And so they're seeing with fresh eyes the greatness of God and how amazing he is and that he really is that good. That's what we saw last week. Then in verse 20, 28, but after they had rest, talking about another time that God had blessed them, they did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you testified against them, verse 29, that you might bring them back to your law. You see that? Not, not punish them, not spank them, but bring them back. You, you see God, the language that he's using, this fatherly love, to bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they, they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Verse 30. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and you testified against them by your spirit and the prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. See how they're seeing God with new eyes? And you see this back and forth, the, the consistency of God and the, the unlimited grace of his nature and character and the inconsistency and the hard-hearted, stiff-necked waywardness of people. Back and forth, back and forth. Verse 32, Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the troubles seem, seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people for the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. Verse 33, however, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Now, when someone finds themselves in this predicament today, when you or me finds ourselves exactly where these people are in Nehemiah chapter 9, where we would say what is said in verse 32 and what is said in verse 33, when that would be our heart, our experience, that here we are, don't take all this calamity that's on us small, God. See the pain and the suffering we're in. And then they start to talk about how we're, we're under their kings and their princes and our priests and our prophets and everything's under their control and it's not going good. How would we typically explain that situation? 
If we were having a conversation amongst each other, sitting around a table talking as brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and someone began talking about their experiences and where they find themselves, I submit to you that I believe that most of the time the conversation would be about spiritual warfare. That our battle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against powers and principalities. In other words, all these things are going wrong in our life. And all these things aren't working out. And things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And, it's, and then someone else is going to say, don't worry, brother. Don't worry, sister. It's spiritual warfare. It, God never said it was going to be easy. And then you know Satan's coming after you because you're God's child. And that may be true. But that's not true here. And I think the vast majority of time in our life, it's not true either. I think what's true for us is what's true here. I think far more often than not, we are where they are, not where we think we are. Now, this is not spiritual warfare. This is the heavy hand of God upon His people. This is... If you want to use a very unpopular phrase, maybe you could say the judgment of God. This is God's chastening love. This is God bringing you back. Now, I know that just because the Bible tells me that. Look at verse 33. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. So all this mess that we're in, it's not spiritual warfare. That you're just in what's befallen us. Well, what is it? Look at verse 36 and 37. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our Father to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. How can that be? Verse 37, and it yields much increase to the kings, to to their kings. You have set over us because of our sins. This isn't spiritual warfare. This is the ramifications of unfaithful living. See, the problem with playing the spiritual warfare card is that what we do is we wrongly sort of give peace to our heart in the idea that it's not God bringing us to change It's just the nature of this life that we live. But before you can do that, you you can't just leap over the vast reality that, that covers and spans the whole scope of Scripture where it's not spiritual warfare at all. It's God dealing with you and with me because we're being disobedient. In other words, we we have a tendency in us, if you don't know, a very strong, deep-seated tendency as the people of God to depart from Him, to drift, to stray off the path. And when we depart from Him, one of the things that always happens is we begin to create our own God. You see, when we depart from God, we, 
we then find substitutes for God. We don't drift to nothing, we drift to something. And whatever we drift to then begins to rival the God that we drifted from. That's not spiritual warfare. And that's what happens probably nine out of ten times. And everyone's running around saying, well, it's just spiritual warfare. And here's the shocking thing about it. It's the same thing here as it is here. The people of God don't even realize what they've done until crisis comes. Like, we don't get it until the bottom falls out. Like, we are totally content to worship an idol and not even acknowledge the fact that it's an idol. We're blind to the fact that there's idolatry in our life. And then a crisis comes and then we're like, hey, what happened? Just like them. In other words, they were perfectly content until Nebuchadnezzar showed up. And then all of a sudden they're like, what? Wait a minute. And then they slowly just work their way back into contentment under foreign rule. Which is why we're studying this book named after a man, Nehemiah. You do realize that there's millions of Hebrews. And we're talking about one man who has a burden that goes, wait a second, this isn't right. Something's wrong. Where are the other two million people? Well, they're just living their life in a foreign land. They've just become accustomed to a life of idolatry. And so when revival happens, when this relationship gets renewed, what happens is then you start to see the cycle. You see the error of your ways. You see how God blesses you, and then you, do, and then you drift away, and then you know bad things happen, and then you come back, and then you drift away, and you see this cycle of the, the flippancy of our hearts. And so the people of God, whenever revival sets in, one of the things that happens is they realize, wait a second, now I realize the problem. We've been disobedient. And now that we're back under the attentiveness to your word where we belong, we see that clearly, and what we don't want to do is continue down this cycle. We want to break the cycle. So how do we break the cycle? Then we get to verse 38, the last verse of chapter 9. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and we write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests will seal it. So they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to break this cycle and they're going to write a covenant to God and they're going to sign it. They're going to write down all the things that they're going to do, which I think is a wonderful idea. That way they don't forget. That way everyone's held accountable. I mean, aren't you glad that everybody had to sign the Declaration of Independence? Aren't you glad that they were willing to you know, put their life on what the the most powerful nation in the world saw as treason. They would put their life on the line by everybody looks like they were totally afraid except for John Hancock. He's like, come on and get me. But everybody else is like. But you sign it. You're saying, no, I'm staking my life on this document. And so they're signing it. So that's what happens in, verse, in chapter 10, the first 27 verses 
are all a bunch of names. I'm not about to read them. But if you take the time to study them, as I have, you'll find out there's 84 names there. All these names represent somebody. They're important. They mean something. If I had three hours, we'd spend three hours talking about it. We talk about the fact that 22 of these names are priests. They're people that are in the priesthood. 17 are Levites, and 44 of them are leaders. They're, they're leaders that assist in the temple worship and assist the Levites and the priests. Then you get down to verse 28. Now notice, before you get to 28, go back to chapter 10, verse 1. Who's the first name on the covenant? Nehemiah. He signs it first. Let me explain something to you about revival. If you study all the revivals in the history of humanity, what you'll find is that revival always starts amongst God's people. It always starts, it has never started, without a supreme call and discipline to prayer. And it always starts in the leaders, amongst leaders, that God breaks the heart of leaders. Now, that doesn't mean the leaders are the ones that start praying. It just means that the process, God works through those that he set in place. God doesn't jump ship. He doesn't break rank when he does something. And so he works through what he has established. But people pray, and then God begins to work in the heart of the leaders, and then revival comes amongst the people. And so that's what happens. And so Nehemiah signs it first. Then you get to verse, uh, then you get down to the end of verse 28, and it wasn't just uh, the, the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nephinim, that's the, those servants within the uh, uh, temple. They're, they're there. And all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God, their wives, it wasn't just the heads of households, it was their wives, their sons, their daughters, their teenagers signed it. Everyone who had knowledge and understanding. So all those who were old enough to be responsible and accountable for what was going on, sign the document. And they're saying, we don't want any more status quo. We don't want to go back to the way it used to be. That we now see clearly and we're going to do something to try to keep ourselves on track because we realize how flippant we are. And one of the problems we have, don't you see, is that we think we're good. I mean, if you're here this morning and you think, man, I got, I'm strong, you're crazy. You're not. None of us are. You've got to anchor yourself. Anchor yourself to certain things in this life that will keep you on track or you will absolutely, positively drift into terrible consequences. All of us. Because we're human. Just like these people. And so they all they make this document. Then we get down to verse 29. Look at chapter 10, verse 29. And these joined with the brethren, the nobles, and they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinance and his, and his statutes. And so what they did was they entered into this and they said, we're making a covenant with you, a covenant, a promise. A, a, a curse and an oath that, if, that not only are we promising and devoting ourselves before you to do this, but the fact that if we don't, that, that there's a curse that falls upon us, that if we don't, all these bad things will happen to us that we, we know about, that we've learned about. And so we're, we're understanding all of that. 
And they're saying, Lord, whatever we find in your word, we'll do it. Which they've already exhibited. They've spent a week sleeping in booze on their roof. And all their kids were going, Dad, why are we on the roof in a booth again? And he's saying, Son, because I know that we have this comfortable house to live in, but there was a time when our people didn't have these comfortable houses, and God freed us and led us across the wilderness, and so on and so forth. He's instructing them of how he used to be. And so they're, they're being obedient to what even things that maybe they don't understand, or they could have said, Well, that doesn't really pertain to us, but they're being obedient. And they're saying, Here's what we'll do. And in the midst of that, they're saying, we'll do whatever we find in your word. But we also know that there's certain things that we have a tendency to fall apart on. There's some things that we see as weaknesses in ourselves, And so we're not going to do these things because they're, they're areas of our life that we struggle in. And so they begin to cover some of these areas. You look at verse 30. They said, we would not give our daughters and our wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. See, the first area of weakness is our homes. They prioritize our homes. As the people of God, they say, we need to be very cautious about our home. Now, this issue of marrying other peoples, this has nothing to do with race. This is about idolatry. This is about a renewed relationship, and then God wants to give them an identity. So everything is about identity. It's about who God created them to be and them being that and embracing all that that is. And so part of that is, is you, if you intermingle with other people, their gods are going to intermingle into your life and you're going to become idolatrous, which is what always seems to happen. You see, when God uh, led the people into the promised land through Moses, Moses told them before they ever went in. He said, now listen, you're about to go into this land. It's not your land, but it's going to be given to you. There's homes in this land that you're going to live in, but you didn't build them. There's wells in this land that you didn't dig, but you're going to drink of them. There's trees in this land that you didn't plant, but you're going to eat of them. That all of these things that you didn't do anything to deserve or to earn are going to be there for you to to bless you. But there's also peoples in this land, and you need to be very careful about these peoples. Don't get mixed up in the pagan worship of these peoples, or it's going to destroy your homes. Well, did they listen? No. Judges chapter 3. We're dealing with this through the book of Judges, uh, the rebellion of people. And so in Judges chapter 3 is another example of it, namely five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, uh, the Sidonians, the Hivites dwell on the Mount of Lebanon and the Mount of Baal uh, Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that these people were left in the promised land. Why? The Bible says, verse 4, that the Lord might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. You see, God could have eradicated all the people, and they could have walked into an empty promised land. I mean, he could have built Disneyland over there if he'd have wanted to. But the point was they're going to go over there and it was going to be a wonderful place with a lot of things that they didn't do anything to deserve. They were going to see the goodness of God, but they were going to have to overthrow these people to see the power and faithfulness of God as he led them through that process. So he did that as a test. Verse 5, Judges 3. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and they gave their daughters and their sons to serve their gods. 
And if you read the book of Judges from Judges 3 forward, what you find is it is this never-ending litany of greater and greater dysfunction until when you get to the last couple chapters of the book of Judges, it's like the outtakes from the Jerry Springer show. And the book ends, chapter 21, the last verse says, And in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was absolute anarchy. It was a disaster. Idolatry destroys identity. And God created us as His people to have an identity in Him. And idolatry destroys that. And one of the things that we need to be very careful about is our homes. Because a Christian home should have an identity as a Christian home. Well, another thing, look at verse 31. Not only our homes, but our witness. In verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath uh, or on the holy day. We would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Now, what is this about? Is this, I mean, first of all, this is Saturday, not Sunday, for those of you that are like, huh, well, go home and look it up. So it's Saturday, the Sabbath, and again, so many times somebody goes to Nehemiah chapter 10, and they absolutely just miss the whole point. And they stand up and they preach this sermon about how you ought to separate yourself, and you ought to not intermarry, and you ought to do this. And then they get to this verse, and they go, now on the Sabbath, you ought not do anything on the Sabbath. That's the Lord's day. You ought to just come to church, and that's all. To which I always say, I bet if you had a heart attack, you'd be glad somebody worked on the Sabbath. I bet, you wouldn't, I bet you wouldn't say that to the ambulance driver when he showed up at your house. I bet you wouldn't be mad at the firemen when they came and put your house out, would you? That's not what this is about. This is about identity. God has simply gave them the Sabbath to identify them as a different people. That's the whole idea here. The point is that don't compromise your distinction. In other words, all the other peoples of the land, when they come to sell you something on Saturday... You say, no, sorry, close for business. You have to come back the next day because we're God's people and we don't buy and sell and trade on this day, not because of any legalistic reason, but because God wants them to be distinctive on that day. It's all identity. That's what God's restoring here, relationship, identity. I hope some of these pieces are starting to come together. I hope some of you are already starting to think, oh, okay, I get it. Because maybe you were in a marriage, and your marriage started out wonderful, and you stood on a, a, a platform like this and a place like this and declared your love and made a covenant to somebody before everyone who was important to you and before God. And you said, till death do us part, and that was the way it was going to be. But then there was a time that came when things weren't going so well, and you didn't feel very married. And you were maybe estranged. And so you, didn't, you weren't walking around every day feeling the same married way that you once did. But you see, if God began to work in your marriage and He began to restore that, maybe you, you and your spouse came back to church and things began to repair and heal and rebuild. And what happened is as the relationship between you and your spouse rebuilt, what happened? Your identity as a husband or wife began to blossom again. 
relationship creates identity. You see? And so what happens is when your relationship with God is revived, the identity of who you are as a person of God gets revived. And so they're saying we need to be careful with our homes and our witness. And then thirdly, with our worship, look at verse 32 and following. And so we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of the ground and to the first fruits of all the trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and of their cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of the herds of our flocks to the house of God, to the priests who minister in the house of God, to bring the first fruits of our dough. That's not money, that's actually dough, but they're dough. Our offerings. But when you give offerings, it is dough. It's not dough. Do not put dough in the offering plate. <laughs> the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests and the storerooms of the house of God, and to bring the tithes of our land of the Levites. And the Levites should receive the tithes of all the farming communities. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of God to the rooms of the storehouse. And it ends, verse 39, and we will not neglect the house of God. They realized that their homes were a place they needed to watch out. They realized that their witness to the other places around them, to the other peoples around them, needed to understand who they were and their identity, and that their worship, that, that, all, that they had forsaken the worship of God, that they weren't doing the things that God had called them to do to make sure that they had a place to worship and that it was flourishing and that they were being obedient to what God had called them to do. And so they set this, they write it down. They say, here's what we're committing to do, Lord. You see, they're taking action. But this is what I want you to understand. Identity always precedes action. You see, if, if we had the time, we would just painstakingly go through this process where you would see that the relationship comes first. The relationship then creates identity. The identity then creates action. If you change the order, if you shuffle the deck you then pervert the gospel and create something that is not the gospel. And you're all experts in this. You just don't know it. What do you think legalism is? Legalism is changing the order. Same pieces, different order. You see, legalism says, we do, therefore we are. Legalism says that we act a certain way, therefore we're accepted. Legalism says that because we do things, that creates our identity. That's backwards. Identity always precedes action. You see, to say that you act a certain way that creates your identity is false. It's wrong. It's, it's unnatural. It doesn't work that way. It's the epitome of hypocrisy, which is why wherever you find legalism, you find giant sinkholes filled with hypocrisy. Why? Because it can only be hypocrisy. Because it can't be true. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work. It's like trying to make fire wet. You can't do it. You can't make acts bring about identity. 
it won't, it just won't work. So it can only be hypocrisy. The gospel is the correct order. That you're accepted in Jesus Christ. Your identity is such that you then do. You obey him because you're accepted. You're not accepted because you obey him or you're a hypocrite. You see, when, you, when you're in the gospel, you're accepted. Now listen closely to what I'm about to say. You're accepted in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you take action. But when you fail to do as you should do, you're not any less accepted. You understand? The relationship of acceptance doesn't go away because you don't do. Your experience in that relationship. Listen, remember the marriage illustration? When the marriage went bad and the marriage started fading away, you weren't less married than you were on your honeymoon. You're still just as legally married, but you don't experience marriage until the relationship is brought back. And so our, when we disobey, we're not less accepted. We just don't experience the joy that the relationship is created to bring into our lives. All of this is by perfect design by God. All of this is spelled out in a thousand different ways in Scripture for us to get this through our heads. You see... Because of the one that I'm in relationship with. Because of the one whom you're in relationship with, Jesus. Because he has this unrelenting love for us in such a way that he refuses to give up on us or to allow us to continue to live apart from him. He's ever working in our circumstances to bring us back. Okay, now. You're an angel. What are you going to do with your farmer who's working as a blacksmith? Now, God has commissioned you, given you responsibility for this person. And they're working as a blacksmith. And you're so frustrated. And they're, they're saying, no, I'm a blacksmith now. And you're saying, no, you're not a blacksmith. You're a farmer. No, I'm a blacksmith. And you go to the blacksmith and you say, listen, I need to try to explain this to you. Don't be afraid. I'm an angel. What is wrong with you? And the blacksmith says, why won't God make me successful in my blacksmithing? And you say, because that's not you're never going to be successful in blacksmithing. No matter what happens, no matter how hard you try, no matter, you're never going to be successful at it because that's not what God created you to do. You have to come back and be a farmer. And then they say, but I tried that and it didn't work. No, no. You tried that, but you, you did it the wrong way. You see... So then you lead him back to the farm. And you say, now, take off your coveralls, put on your overalls. You're a farmer. Now, let me explain something to you about farming. 
in order to farm, you are subject to the laws of nature. You cannot just do whatever you want to do. It's, it won't work. It's not that, that, that nature's not after you. It's that that's what nature is. And so when you get frustrated with nature, understand, nature doesn't change. You can't just farm any which way you want to. It won't work. When you wake up in the morning, I'm sure you are splendidly beautiful. What would you think of someone who woke up in the morning, walked into the bathroom and looked at their reflection in the mirror and said, honey, come here. You got to see this. Look at what the bed did to my hair. And they then went and they said, now, now, wait a minute. And so your spouse comes in and says, what? And look at what the bed did to my hair. When I went to bed last night, it wasn't like this. And I was sleeping, so I couldn't have done it. The bed did this. And you say, no, the bed didn't do this. And you say, yeah, it did. So we, we need to pray because the bed's out to get me. You know that's you. When you say, it's spiritual warfare. The reason why I'm not being successful as a blacksmith is because it's spiritual warfare. See, I tried being a farmer, but nature's out to get me. Don't you understand that God created you to be in relationship with Him. And that relationship is going to create an identity. And when that identity is, is founded in Him, then it's going to lead to action, just like it is here. But when you do things the way you want to do them, when you ignore the things that the Bible says that you ought to be doing. When you say, well, I know God says this, but... And then you say, well, why isn't this working out? It must be spiritual warfare that it's not working out. It must be that the, the devil is after me because look at the condition of my life to which heaven is going what on earth gave you that idea? Yes, spiritual warfare is real, but that ain't your problem. Your problem is you're trying to farm your way. And then you're mad because things won't grow because you won't cooperate with the weather, so you're blaming the weather, therefore you're going to go be a blacksmith. No wonder we're in a foreign land. And do you know what the, the presupposition is of the It's Spiritual Warfare card? Think about how beautiful it is. It's such a little trick we play. It's spiritual warfare. 
You know what that means? I don't need to change. It's the devil who's after me. I can just keep farming any way I want to. Eventually, God will make it so that things will grow in the winter. No, He won't. No, He won't. What God will do is He will continually work in your life until you finally realize that what's wrong is that you're doing it your way. And your way will never, ever work. And so you need to come back under the attentiveness to the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, which will then renew your relationship with God, which will then create in you this distinctive identity as a person of God, which will then yield the correct fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes from a person who's identified with Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's not spiritual warfare. It's disobedience. We, we don't have a, a spiritual warfare problem. We've got an identity problem. What I'm telling you this morning is what you need to know is you need to know who you are. You need to know this morning who you are. You need to be able to walk out of this place this morning and say, I know who I am. I know that God called me to be a farmer. I'm not meant to do anything else but farm. And as long as I'm farming, I'm subject to the rules of farming. So God, would you be kind enough as to write down, maybe give me the ten rules of farming so I can be successful at farming. Sure, how about I put it on two big planks of rock. Would that work for you? Yeah, that would be helpful. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll give you 66 books of my word. That is an endless essay on how to be the most fruitful farmer you could ever want to be. But as long as you're blaming the bed for messing up your hair, you can, you can pray against the demon in your bed all you want to. You can plant everything you want to at the wrong time. It ain't ever going to grow and your hair ain't never going to get fixed until it's all gone. Then it'll just be fine. No one will even notice This is why the Bible, now listen to me, and then I'm done. But you got to hear this because you need to understand this principle. What does the Bible do when we come to God and say, God, I have a sin problem, and I'm not sure how to deal with it. I know that what I'm doing is wrong, and I know that you want me to change. Help me to change. How does the Bible address that question? The Bible says that what you don't know is who you are. The Bible says that the way to combat sin in your life is identity. Not legalism, identity. Case in point, when Paul, I mean, if, if I'm going to pick 
If I'm going to open up the New Testament and I'm going to say, okay, where are the most whacked out people in the New Testament? Corinth. If anybody's got sin problems, it's Corinth. They got rampant sexual sin. They got problems on every level. Paul goes in there, and how does he address all their problems? What does he tell them about their sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Now listen, he doesn't say what you think he would say. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own identity? He said, the way you combat sexual sin is identity. Next verse, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body as in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, Here's the action, but this action only flows out of this identity. He could have just said, well, why don't you just stop it and glorify God in your body? Because you can't until you know who you are, that you were bought with a price, that you're not your own. That's the power to overcome sin. He doesn't say stop it. God doesn't say, if you keep doing this, I'm going to smash you. He doesn't motivate us to stop that way. He says, you're a farmer. Why are you in the blacksmithing shop? What are you doing? That's not who you are. God doesn't doesn't follow you around and make your sexual immorality not work. It can't work. It can never work. It's not who you are. Every time you sin, it blows up in your face because it's not who you are. You're raging against what is not to be. But somehow we keep thinking to ourselves, it's spiritual warfare. If God would just be stronger in me, then I could overcome the problem. No. You don't know who you are. Romans chapter 6, again, Paul's addressing Christians, battling sin. What's the solution? What then shall we say? Shall we just continue to sin that grace may abound? Is that the solution? Well, of course not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Identity. That's not who you are. Verse 4, therefore we were buried. Who are we? Well, we were alive, we were dead, then we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. No action apart from identity. You get identity right, action follows. A restored relationship with Jesus Christ restores our identity, which then reshapes our actions, which then renews our joy. So now maybe we understand from heaven's perspective. The frustration of chasing a people around 
who God created to farm. Put them in their own custom, fertile, designed place to farm. Gave them everything they needed to be as fruitful as they could ever imagine. And yet, they wail against the weather. When God says to do this, and you do that, you might as well be fighting the sun. It will never work. God's work in your life is not to punish you. It's to bring you back to himself. It's the reason he started this whole thing. And it's the same thing today. The most important thing that you need to know is who are you? See, some of you this morning, you're not sure. That, it, that if, if you say, Pastor, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a farmer or a blacksmith. I don't know if I'm a store clerk. I mean, I, I have no idea what I am. I've just bounced around from church to church. I've been told all these different things. I've really never attentively put myself under the Word of God before. And now suddenly I'm realizing I, I don't know who I am. And God's saying, well, good. Come unto me. Come unto me. And I'll make you my child. And I'll give you everything you need to farm the land that I've given you. Some of you know that God's called you to himself but you're doing it your way and the reason that you're in a dry and thirsty land is because you're fighting against you're fighting against the grace of God and you'll never win that battle never he loves you Come home to the farm. Do it his way. It's not spiritual warfare. It's obedience. And you'll find the joy that you were created for. It's just that simple. Let's stand and bow our heads.